All right, thank you and good morning to you. I'm uh, Pastor Dave Mitchell and uh, one of the pastors here at Calvary Church. Good to be with you this morning. Happy New Year to you all. <laughs> Don't make me beg. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, it's great to be able to start out this new year and a new series called Set Free, Being Set Free. We started the service this morning with the great hymn that takes us through the truths that we believe that Jesus Christ has provided for us in that great hymn called, And Can It Be? One of the verses we did not sing, Ron sent this to me, and I thought it was so good. Listen to this third verse of And Can It Be? And many of us are very familiar with that great hymn. The third verse says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I love that last line. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's my desire, is that our chains fall off, our heart is free, we rise up, we go forth, and we follow the Lord. And so being set free, as you can see on this new uh, set that we have here, and dozens and dozens of people help to put together those uh, paper chains, they are symbolic that we are set free from the chains that hold us back. And a lot of us are held back by a lot of things, and uh, sometimes they're very obvious things, whether drugs and alcohol and, and some of the addictions and uh, really bad habits that we have. Sometimes they're a little more subtle in terms of those things that hold us back. They're more emotional, uh, they're more deep-seated. Uh, they come out of something that uh, we grew up in and we don't even recognize it as a chain on us. And it's hard to identify and others may see it, but we don't see it in ourselves. But we want to use the study of the book of Romans to help people to be set free from whatever is holding us back. You have an outline that's available for you, and I encourage you to turn to that and have it in hand. I wanted to show you an interesting quote and another quote as well. John Calvin is one of the great uh, theologians and preachers that has done significant work for the Lord. He says this about the book of Romans. When anyone gains the knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. The book of Romans really uh, tells the spiritual journey that people who believe in Jesus should follow. Let me give you a quick outline, easy way to remember the book of Romans if you don't know it already, and I suspect that many of you do know this. But if you think through the book of Romans, this should be our spiritual journey. The first three chapters, Romans 1 through 3, it's all about sin, how sinful we are that no one seeks after God. You think anybody's seeking after God? We don't. We don't seek after God. God seeks after us. So Romans 1 through 3, it's all about sin. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, it's all about salvation. The salvation of being justified by Jesus Christ, to be made pure and holy, to be placed into His righteousness. So from sin to salvation, then chapters 7 and 8, talks about sanctification. What's sanctification? It's being set apart. Now that I'm saved, I want to be set apart. I want to be freed up from those sins. I want to be sanctified. I want to be made holy. I want to be more like Jesus every day. 
And so the sanctification comes through the Holy Spirit, as it says in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit fills us, and we cry to the Father in heaven, Abba. And the Holy Spirit gives us words to pray when we don't even know how to pray, Romans 8. We'll explore that together. From sin to salvation to sanctification, then we realize in chapters 9 through 11, it's all about the sovereignty of God, that God is a sovereign God. And the sovereignty of God is not something you begin when you're living in sin. The sovereignty of God is something a sinner rebels against. It's hard for us to imagine that God is a sovereign God that rules over us. Wait, where's my free spirit? Where's my freedom to be who I want to be? To be how I think I am made to be? No, when you, when you grow, when you become aware of your sin, and then you're saved from your sin, you're sanctified, made holy, then the sovereignty of God begins to make a lot more sense. Because God is a sovereign God. He wants to rule. He wants to guide. He wants to care for. He makes choices. He elects. He designs. And those who are sanctified say, yes, I see the greatness of my God, that He is a sovereign God. I'm not God. He's God. He sovereignly rules over me. So we're going to see that in chapters 9 through 11. And then chapter 12 is one of the great chapters that uh, many of us know, perhaps the best, 12, 1 and 2, where we are then placed into His service. Chapters 12 to the end of the book, 16. It's all about serving the Lord. That we're to be a living and holy sacrifice for Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn about service in Romans 13 to the government. The government is full of ministers for us. Romans 14 talks about uh, those gray areas, drinking wine, stumbling our brother. And on we go as we look at the very last chapter of these wonderful saints that he loves to recognize for their service to the Lord. And so that's Romans. Romans is where we begin in sin. We recognize the sin, and so we're saved out of the sin. Then in salvation, we're moved into sanctification as we get more holy. And then we understand the sovereignty of God to rule over all that we do and say so that we ultimately can end up in Romans 12 through 16 in service for the Jesus Christ. That's the book of Romans. So we want to journey together from sin to service. And so this morning we're going to begin with that great foundation. And I love what Martin Luther, you know, Martin Luther grew up in a time when it was so hard to be a true, dedicated, saved, sanctified servant of Jesus Christ. And Martin Luther wasn't saved until he read Romans And I put on the back side of the outline Martin Luther's great quote. I know you can read. I can read too. I just want to prove that I can read. And so let me read this. Martin Luther, when he was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church and so caught up in the regulations and the rituals and the works and and all the the sanctimonious uh, regulations of the Roman Catholic Church, then he reads the book of Romans. And this is what he writes. He says, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy... He justifies us by faith. That's that great line that Martin Luther came up. He justifies us by faith, not by works. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God has filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet 
in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. And I hope that as we go through Romans, it's a gateway for us to enter into that heavenly existence where the righteousness of God is not something that makes me filled with hate, but something that, as he talks about it here, this inexpressible sweetness of living in the love that God has for us. And so as we go through it, we'll always have an outline for you to follow along. We won't deal with every word, every verse. It's just uh, it would take us uh, until the rapture to get through it. But we encourage you to follow along. And one thing I would encourage you to do, if you'd like to be experiencing what I'm just talking about, and I would encourage you sometime this week, when you have a big block of time, not when all this football is on, but after football is over, this is the greatest, January is the greatest month for football, so you have to have some allowance. But, uh, and I'm just, I'm just joking, sort of. And so... Um, But when you have a good block of time for one hour, just read through the entire 16 chapters and just let God speak through His Spirit into your heart of that journey from sin to service, out of sin into service. That's the ultimate goal. So this morning, the emphasis is going to be on don't miss the call of God. Let me read verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to it. This is a chapter and a book that is a little bit easier to find than the book of Ezekiel, uh, where most of us, many of us, if we turn to Ezekiel, the pages are still stuck together. Uh, but hopefully Romans, it falls open more easily. And Romans 1, 1 through 17 says this, and it's all about don't miss the call of God. It's all about God's call, our call, to be set free and to set other people free. He says, the Apollo, the bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel word, I think, is used about five times in this one little section. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. That's you and me. We're called as well. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, so it begins. Here's my priority. That's just the introduction. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, the Roman believers in Rome. Always in my prayer making request. If perhaps now at the last the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you. That you may be established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you. Each of us by the other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware brethren that often I have planned to come to you. And have been prevented so far, 
so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter. It's often referred to as an epistle. And Paul has three reasons to write this letter. Number one, Phoebe is going there, so he has an opportunity to have it delivered. They didn't have the U.S. mail in those days and didn't have email. So he had to wait for somebody to go into Rome. So if someone's going to Rome, let me write a letter. Secondly, he wants to explain what the gospel is, what the true gospel message is and the, the righteousness of God. And thirdly, he wants to kind of weave together this uh, little friction between Jew and Gentile. That's why you see him as a, to the Jew first, but also the Gentile. You see the Jewish thing in Romans 9 through 11, the sovereignty of God is not done with Israel and so forth. And so he wants to bind them together and he just puts together by the Holy Spirit's inspiration this rich, rich book that to people like Martin Luther reveals the righteousness of God is not something to hate, but something that is inexpressibly sweet that grows in greater love in my life and sets people free from those things that hold them back. So how do we get there? What is the call of God? First of all, the call of God. The next Sunday is a challenging Sunday because we're going to be dealing with Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. That is probably one of the more difficult passages for us to study together. And the reason for it is because it goes into this whole realm of the dealings of the homosexuals and, and some of the sin and the wrath of God. And so I encourage you to come and get a biblical perspective of what God has for us. As we look into the depths of how sin is so sinful, but also how the grace of God is so gracious. And so we want to balance the two together. This morning, what is the call of God? Our call is uh, like Paul, the apostle. He was called of God, set apart for the gospel message. Everyone, all of us, all of us, we're called of Jesus Christ. We're called as saints. We are set apart. We are chosen by God. He wants us to move out. And what are those things that we should move out on? Always our lives are pivoting upon one central fact. That's what he talks about. It's the gospel message. Here is the gospel defined. 1 Corinthians 15 is the definition of the gospel. I don't think that there is another passage that so succinctly defines what the gospel is. Paul talks about the gospel. I take from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5 in part. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. What is the gospel? I underline the three essential things that you and I should know about. I preached it to you, he says, for I delivered to you as first importance that what I also received, that number one, Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That was consistent with what God had said. And that secondly, he was buried, proves that he died. Thirdly, he was raised in the third day, according to the Scriptures, as the Scriptures had predicted that he would do so, and he did, and that he appeared to Cephas in the Twelve, and then to Paul the Apostle, and to five hundred others, so proving that he was alive. So the burial proves he died, and the people like Cephas, Peter, the Twelve, Paul, the five hundred, proves that he lives. That's the gospel. 
I hear the word gospel used a lot. I hear people use it in a broad and generic way, and, and that can be okay. But never believe me. If you're going to be an educated follower of Jesus and a literate student of God's Word, and isn't to put down anybody or anything, but when you talk about the true essence of what the gospel is, that's what the gospel is. I believe in the gospel. What is it? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. That's the gospel. So when you throw around the word the gospel, that's what you need to be understanding that you are trying to say and communicate. I'll talk about that again in a moment. So the gospel has three ingredients. You notice in the outline. It's first of all, it's a message. This gospel comes from God. It's good news. It is old news. As Romans 1 and 1 and 2 says, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets. God has always promoted the gospel. The gospel is promoted in the Old Testament. It's looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself said, when he was resurrected, walk with these couple of guys on the road to Emmaus. They didn't understand that the Savior Jesus was to die on the cross, be buried, and rise again. They didn't get the gospel. But Jesus says, I've always been preaching the gospel. It's so hard to get through to people what the gospel is and is not. So he says on this conversation, the resurrected Jesus says this, he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart. And it must aggravate God that there are so many believers who do not understand what God is doing. He says, foolish men, slow of heart. Jesus didn't pull any punches. He says, you are slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. All the prophets have spoken of this. This is Old Testament news. They've all been looking forward to this. It says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Why are you foolish, slow of heart men not believing what has been said so many times by the prophets? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. So as Paul says, it's good news, but old news prepared beforehand. Isaiah 53 is perhaps the obvious, easiest passage. I have in my notes, and I didn't put it on the back side of the outline. I thought about it, but didn't do it, and I didn't want to use anyways. I got 44 verses I could give to you, 44 verses that all speak about Jesus in the Old Testament, 44 Old Testament verses that speak about Jesus fulfilled by 44 verses in the New Testament. This is not a new concept, that the gospel of God would come through Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection for our sins. That's a, not a new concept, it's an old concept. And that's what Jesus was preaching to these two guys who didn't get it. That God says, I am so full of the gospel, and I just want you to understand it. So it's a message that comes from God. Secondly, it's a message that's centered on Jesus Christ. And if you don't get that, then we'll lose a lot of the essence of what God has. A message centered on the person of Jesus Christ. It says, concerning His Son, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. You know, there's three things that Paul says that this gospel message is centered on. Centered on Jesus Christ is, number one, as a man. He is human. He says, born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So as a human being, born of a woman, we just celebrated the birth, and so we don't need to go into it, but he was fully, fully man. Secondly, Jesus is fully God, as he says in Romans 1.4. Declared the Son of God, which means God, with power by the resurrection. Declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection. The resurrection, the resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Um, 
you will read, and I have read, and you have read, that there are those that believe that there, yes, monotheistically, there is only one God. And that really, whether you're Muslim or whether you're Christian, we all worship the same God. I saw it in the newspaper just about a month ago. Colonist who is a, of Islam faith wrote that we all believe in the same God, Muhammad, Jesus, we all go to the same God. Well, that's simply not true. There is only one God. There is only one true God. And for a Muslim to say that there is only one God and we all have the same God, we all worship the same God, that is then therefore to say and to believe that Jesus Christ is the God because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is not, as Muslims would say, Jesus is not just a good prophet, but what Scripture teaches us is that Jesus is God. So if you ever hear those say that we all worship the same God, then you have to conclude that you believe in Jesus as God because Jesus is God. Jesus is not just a good prophet who worships the God in heaven. Jesus is the God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's only one God, three persons of the Trinity, but one God. Jesus is that God, declared the Son of God with the power of the resurrection. So when you and I preach the gospel, we preach that Jesus is fully man, died in my place for my sins. We also preach that Jesus is fully God, worthy of giving to me the forgiveness of my sins. So you can't have forgiveness without both of those being true. And that not only that, but Jesus is now alive. He says he's resurrected from the dead. So there are three essences that concerning the, the, the person of Christ that the gospel has. That Jesus is man, Jesus is God, Jesus is currently alive. And the resurrection separates us from all other faiths. And I know we live in a world where tolerance and acceptance are like, you know, the highest of religious values. But we can be gracious and humble and at the same time speak the truth that not all religions are the equal and we don't have to be shy about saying that ours is the only one by which we are able to gain access to a holy God in heaven. And that's because Jesus is the resurrected God there is no other religion that even claims the resurrection of their leader, whether it's Mohammed or, or the other religions that are out there. There is no other religion. Buddha, it doesn't matter. No one ever claimed to rise from the dead and no one ever proved that they rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection separates us from all other faiths. So what makes ours so special? We worship a living God who rose from the dead. And if you want to rise from the dead, you need to believe in the Jesus that died for you and caused you to rise from the dead as well. So Jesus is alive. So Paul begins his message. He says, I'm called to set people free. I want to set people free. You cannot be set free unless you believe that Jesus is the way through which that can occur. The problem is that a lot of people do damage to this gospel message. Here's what Paul warned against in Galatians 1. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a, and I underline it, different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel. For I have you, uh, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's some human idea. The danger is that we have people want to create a 
different gospel or they want to distort the gospel. It happened 2,000 years ago. It's going on today. He also says in 2 Corinthians 11, For I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve and his deception is ongoing today, not just to Eve but to you and me, by his craftiness your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, see, I want to have an alternative. Satan loves to counterfeit. He knows that we can't just get rid of Jesus. We've got to have an alternative Jesus or another Jesus whom we have not preached. Or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, a different gospel which you have not accepted. You bear this beautifully. The danger for you and me is that we lose... That's why I began in 1 Corinthians 15. What is the gospel? Is Christ died for my sins. I'm a sinner. I need somebody to die for me. Take the penalty. He was buried proving that he died. He rose from the dead seen by hundreds of people so that I can rise from my spiritual death. That's the gospel. But there are those that have a different or distorted gospel. How do they do that? They do it by what they add to the gospel. They do it by what they take away from the gospel. They don't want to let the gospel stand on its own. So what Satan loves to do is to give us alternative plans. Plan B, plan C, plan D, and all the way to plan Z. He loves to have alternative plans. And some of the most simple ways to see that the addition is what Martin Luther discovered in the Roman Catholic Church. And no offense to any other religion like the Roman Catholicism. Some of you are saved out of it. Some of you still worship in Roman Catholic churches today. But the danger and the risk is this, is that I begin to add to the gospel things that I need to add in Baptist churches. I've been in two Baptist churches before here. And how many times did I have somebody, I asked somebody, well, when do you come to know Jesus as your Savior? He says, well, I was baptized in 1955. Well, no. Baptism is not the same answer that I'm looking for for the question, when were you saved? We add baptism, we add communion, we add church attendance, we add good works. Uh, you're here today. I'm hoping to be, because I'm in the church, I must be a Christian. And, and so I'm in America, so I'm a Christian nation. You know, all these crazy things that you and I are probably somewhat familiar with, we begin to add to it things that it does not indicate. And we need to even be careful. I, I have a really have appreciated as a fascinating book that I read over the last couple of years, about two years ago, a year ago or so. And, uh, and the title of the book is called As a Hole in the Gospel. I know what he says, and I, I appreciate the emphasis that we need to be involved in doing the good work of expressing our faith in serving others, whether it's sometimes the terminology of social justice is has a sort of a negative stigma to it, but we should express it. I just get concerned when I see a title that says a hole in the gospel. Well, if the gospel is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, there's no hole in that gospel. If we want to add to what our faith should express, go for it. But 
I don't like to redefine the terms because then it begins to weaken the substance of the foundation so that it looks like a different gospel. And that's where over the course of my lifetime I've seen down in South America in particular there are religious people doing good but they have this liberation theology of saving people today through good works as opposed to simply preaching the gospel and letting the works be an expression of my faith in Jesus Christ. It becomes muddied to a degree that it distorts. And I say, let's be careful. Not to downplay anybody, because we need to be all about good works. We're going to talk about it in just a moment. But we need to express what the gospel is and what it is not. Don't add to it. Don't subtract. Some people subtract from the gospel. They subtract from the gospel by simply denying that there is truth. They subtract from the gospel by saying that Jesus is not the way to God, but Jesus is a way to God. We have churches, denominations today battling. Is Jesus the way to God or is Jesus a way to God? And there are other ways to God. Jesus says, I am the only way to God in Romans, John 14, 6. And so we, we take from Scripture and we add to Scripture and we distort the gospel. We create a different gospel. And some of the gospels are a lot easier to believe in than the gospel that we believe in because we don't want to submit to a Lord and make Him our Lord and Master. And so we want to retain little G-God so I can call the shots to a certain extent and what I really want to believe in. So I say what Paul says, that I came to preach the gospel, that it's a message of God, a message about Jesus, and it's a message of grace. Through whom we have received grace about obedience of faith, among whom you are also called of Jesus Christ. It's a message of grace that leads to obedience. I grew up in an era, and... Uh, We've talked about this any number of times where grace was diminished and obedience was heightened. You got grace way down here, you got obedience way up here. And obedience became legalism. And that if you really love Jesus, this is the way you dress, this is the way you talk, this is the, the, the games you play, the games you don't play. This is what you drink, this is what you don't drink. And, and you got all these rules and regulations. This is, this is how you dance, and these dances are okay, those dances. And, you know, I, I just grew up in all the kind of things that just uh, were confusing because it was all about obedience, and it wasn't a whole lot about grace. Uh, what Paul is trying to do is to balance the score. We need to be obedient, but it comes out of grace. That God gives to me what I don't deserve. I'm a terrible sinner, Romans 1 through 3. No one seeks after God. Uh, that's how bad my sin is. I don't seek after God. God in His grace calls me to Himself. And as He calls me, He calls me into this relationship with Him out of which obedience is a joy. That's why, the apostle, that's why Martin Luther says, you know, I used to think about the righteousness of God as something that He hates me. The righteousness of God, He hates me because I, I never measure up. Until I really read and understand what the righteousness of God is all about. The righteousness of God is to enter into a relationship with Him where it brings into this inexpressibly sweet, loving relationship. And we do a lot of damage to family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors when our message is more about obedience and not enough about grace. And my thinking about this was changed dramatically, certainly from Scripture. 
But Philip Yancey's book that I recommend to you, if you're one who is kind of hung up on obedience and they must not be believers because look at how disobedient they are. If you're hung up on all obedience and grace is not a very big portion of your life, then I encourage you to read Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace. Because he grew up in this very fundamentalist, legalistic background. And it really helps to bring obedience and grace on par. Not where obedience is here and grace is way down here. Um, we need to be people of grace. Out of which obedience flows because I love to do it. Not because I have to do it. And so this is a message of the gospel. It comes from God, centered on Christ, and expressed in grace. And you and I, we need to go... We need to be people who understand that and live that. And when we live it, when we live it, we're set free. We're no longer encumbered by some of the stuff that uh, distorts and distracts from that. So how do we live it? There's just four quick things I want to show you. The first is this. We live it by praising God over the fact that He allows our faith to be known. This is what I would desire for all of us. He says, first of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Wouldn't it be great that if your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, that's easy to talk about. We need to praise God because our faith is being proclaimed throughout our family. That my faith is so genuine and sincere and authentic that my family, my kids, my parents, my siblings, they see it. That my faith is so profound and so dramatically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that my faith is being proclaimed where I work. Whether you're a cubicle worker or you're the CEO, that where you work, your faith is being proclaimed. That they are recognizing that you are unique and different as a follower of Jesus Christ. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all that your faith is being proclaimed in your neighborhood. That my neighbors recognize me as a follower of Jesus. That my faith of grace, Jesus Christ, and His setting me free has been so dramatically life-changing that they see evidence that it's real. And I'm unlike those who don't follow Jesus because there's a spirit of grace and love and power and transformation that's occurring in my life. And people see growth. They see improvement. They see this, 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 tr this changed, set-free individual that wasn't there a year ago. I pray that the setting free of us is so dramatic that the world in which you and I live, our little world, not just the global world as Paul talks about here, the rural of Rome, but the world that you and I live in of family, friends, and business, and clubs, and sports, and all the places I find myself, that everybody's talking, wow, that person's a person of faith. There's, there's something different. I want to learn more about that. Secondly, that we pray faithfully for each other. Always in my prayer making request of you. This doesn't happen on its own in a vacuum. It's by the power of God. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers making request that perhaps now by the last will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Where there is this prayerfulness of seeing God change lives. Thirdly, I live out this 
gospel message by persevering to provide for each other. And uh, so much more could be said. For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift. That he wants to come, and this word spiritual gift, charisma, it's not spiritual gifts necessarily like you think of. You know of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 where there's this gift list. Charisma means grace. It's charisma, charismatic. We get the Charisma means grace. I want to come to you and impart to you some grace. It may be a spiritual grace. It may be an emotional grace. It may be a physical grace. I want to come and just bless you. I persevere to be with you, provide for you, that I may be established. How often I plan to come to you and been prevented so far. And the reason he wants to come to them, as it says there a little bit later in verse 13, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also. I want to get some fruit among you. You know what Paul is talking about there? I want some money. He says, I want the fruit. I want the fruit of your labor. I want some financial support. We got believers that are distressed over the fact that they are impoverished because they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have the safety net. I need people to give financially so that we can obtain the ministry God's called us to. Well, he says, I, I want to give to you grace, but I want to receive back from you. So we recognize this is a partnership. We persevere to provide for each other in a partnership. It doesn't always go well. I've been prevented so far. I I haven't been able to come to you. The only reason Paul ended up in Rome someday is because he appealed to Caesar because he was being put through the bureaucratic legal system. And so they finally brought him there and so he could have his court case settled. So in a Roman cell, Paul sits there. He finally is in Rome. But the government paid his way to get there. And so he did end up in Rome and he wrote the what we call the prison epistles of Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So he writes these letters to the believers of those areas when he finally got to Rome, but he needed a partnership. We don't do this alone. The reason that we were able to achieve our financial goals in December is not because one or two wrote like these ginormous checks. I don't know who wrote what but or how much, but it's my understanding it's because everybody partnered together. Everybody gave together. So Paul's going to Rome. He wants to come to Rome so that he can bless them with grace and they can bless him with their financial resources to distribute to the churches that needed financial help. And then finally, he wants to preach the power of the gospel to all. So my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we should never be ashamed of the gospel. If we really preach what the true gospel is, we're never going to be ashamed. Where we get ashamed is that we go off from the gospel. We distort the gospel. We have a different gospel. But if you got the gospel, it's all about Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. Nothing to be ashamed about. That's what I believe in. That's who I believe in. That's how I have means by which I am accepted by a holy God. And that's just simply a fact. So never be ashamed of the gospel. You and I are called as saints and by Jesus Christ to be those who help people get set free by the gospel. Not by our cleverness, not by our wittiness, not because of our personality, not because we're somebody special. We are simply going to communicate the gospel, never ashamed of it, so that others can be set free as we've been set free. Because hopefully they've already noticed, as he says in Romans uh, 1 uh, earlier, that your faith is being proclaimed. Your, Your faith is obvious. What's the basis of such transformation in your life? Let me close with this wonderful story. The num- one of the number one stories in 2013 was about this young lady called Kirsten Powers. 
If you watch Fox News and know that Fox News has a, um, a reputation that may be good or bad to some of you, but I read her testimony. Kirsten Powers writes in her testimony these first words. She writes, Seven years ago, if someone had told me that I'd be writing for Christianity Today magazine about how I came to believe in God, I would have laughed out loud. If there was one thing in which I was completely secure, it was that I would never adhere to any religion, especially to evangelical Christianity, which I held in particular contempt. That's where she's coming from. She's a liberal. Every time she's on TV, she brings the liberal side about, you know, things that uh, the government can do and we should support President Obama and things like that. And so that's fine. That's where she comes from. But it's built upon growing up as an atheist. She's an atheist in her heart. She says, I sometimes hear Christians talk about how terrible life must be for atheists. But her lives were not terrible. She says, my life was not terrible as an atheist. Life actually seemed pretty wonderful, filled with opportunity and good conversation and privilege. I know now that it was not as wonderful as that it could have been, but you don't know what you don't know. How could I have missed something I didn't think existed? To the extent that I encountered Christians, it was in news cycles. And inevitably, this is, this is the mindset of an atheist, anti-evangelical Christian to people like you and me. She says, and inevitably they, we, us, were saying something about gay people or feminists. I didn't feel I was missing much. So when I began dating a man who was into Jesus, I wasn't looking for God. In fact, the week before I met him, a friend had asked me if I had any deal breakers in dating. My response is, just nobody who is religious. A few months into our relationship, my boyfriend called to say he had something important to talk to me about. I remember exactly where I was, sitting in my West Village apartment, when he said, Do you believe Jesus is your Savior? My stomach sank. I started to panic. Oh, no, was my first thought. He's crazy. (laughs) Then he said the magic words for a liberal. Do you think you could keep an open mind about it? Well, of course, I'm very open-minded, she said even though I wasn't at all. I derided Christians as anti-intellectual bigots who were too weak to face the reality that there is no rhyme or reason in the world. I had found this man's church attendance an oddity to overlook, not a point in his favor. As I talked, I grew conflicted. On the one hand, I was creeped out. On the other hand, I had enormous respect for him. He's smart, educated, and intellectually curious. I remember thinking, what if this is true and I'm not even willing to consider it? And so she attended with him the Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Tim Keller. If you want to listen to some good teaching, Tim Keller, Google it. But then the pastor preached. I was fascinated. I'd never heard about the things that Tim Keller preached on. I left feeling frustrated. Why did he have to ruin a perfectly good talk with this Jesus nonsense? So I began to read the Bible. My boyfriend would pray with me for God to reveal himself to me. After about eight months of going to hear Keller, I concluded that the weight of evidence was on the side of Christianity. But I didn't feel any connection to God, and frankly, I was fine with that. I continued to think that people who talked of hearing from God or experiencing God were either delusional or lying. 
In my most generous moments, I allowed that they were just imagining things that made them feel good. Then one night in 2006, on a trip to Taiwan, I woke up in what felt like a strange cross between a dream and reality. Jesus came to me and said, Here I am. It felt so real. I didn't know what to make of it. I called my boyfriend, but before I had the time to tell him about it, he told me he had been praying the night before and felt we were supposed to break up. So we did. Honestly, while I was upset, I was more traumatized by Jesus visiting me. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. So I spoke with Eric McTaxis, and he's written on Bonhoeffer, and you hear him on Breakpoint if you listen to Chuck Colson's that thing. He's really a sharp a man speaking to these issues of evangelical Christianity. So he spoke with him, Eric, whom I had met through my boyfriend and who talked with me quite a bit about God. Eric says you need to be in a Bible study. Kathy Keller's Bible study is the one you need to be in. This is Tim Keller's. I didn't like the sound of that, but I was desperate. My whole world was imploding. How was I going to tell my family and friends about what had happened? Nobody would understand. I didn't understand. It says a lot about family in which I grew up in that one of the most pressing concerns was that Christians would try to turn me into a Republican. (laughs) I remember walking into the Bible study. I had a knot in my stomach. In my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. I don't remember what was said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I'll never forget standing outside that apartment on the Upper East Side and saying to myself, it's true. It's completely true. The world looked entirely different, like a veil had been lifted off of it. I had not an iota of doubt. I was filled with indescribable joy. The horror of the prospect of being a devout Christian crept back in almost immediately. I spent the next few months doing my best to wrestle away from God. It was pointless. Everywhere I turned, there He was. Slowly, there was less fear, more joy. The hound of heaven had pursued me and caught me, whether I liked it or not. That's what the gospel does. And as I began this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ wants to set people free. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast, bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If you like the chains of sin and those things that hold us back, the disbelief to be set free, and you come to Jesus, you believe the gospel, you receive the fact that He died for you, He was buried, He rose from the grave the third day, and that His grace gives you the capacity, as Kirsten Powers discovered, to be truly set free, to have less fear and more joy in following and believing in Jesus Christ. That's our gospel. That's our Savior. Never be ashamed of what the gospel can do for a person's life. Let me pray for us and we'll receive our communion. 
Father God, I thank you that you have given to us your son Jesus. Father, this book of Romans is so rich and so full. We have so little time to really mine the depths of all that it says. But I pray, Lord, as we go through it, that you would constantly set us individually free from those things that maybe as Christians still holds us back. Whether it's legalism, whether it's a heaviness on obedience and a lightness on grace, whether it's being ashamed of the gospel, and I shouldn't be ashamed, whether it's adding to or taking away from the gospel and distorting it to a different gospel. But Father, we would come back to the very basics of what you called us into Jesus Christ, death for my sins, buried, rose again, fully God, fully man, my sacrifice. I pray that my faith and our faith would be proclaimed by all around us as they see evidence of your work in our lives. Thank you, for Lord, for these elements, the bread as it represents that human body of Jesus as we bring that to each of us now and have a chance to thank you for being born into this world. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.